Welcome to True Vine Church Community's Sermon of the Week. Our hope is that this message would spark and sustain revival in your relationship with Jesus Christ. For more information about this podcast and other ways to connect with True Vine, visit us at blessphiladelphia.com. Father, you have more love for us than we can fathom. I mean, you demonstrated it by sending Jesus to die for us. And so we don't want to just understand it. We want to know it. I pray that you would give us a fresh experience of the love of the Father toward us. That people would know the sacrifice that you made to give your son. And how your attention is never distracted. How you are not motivated by anger. How you're good and not bad. You're not weak, but you're powerful. And all of those attributes you, you use for the good of those who love you. So Lord, we receive your love in faith And we receive it for the purpose of then displaying love to other people. That it would flow through us. I pray that in the name of Jesus. Amen. Amen. All right, I'm going to dismiss our kids for Children's Church. They can head downstairs. If some of you adults want to go down, that's fine too. Maybe you might have wished you had done that by the end of the morning. All right. Um, one of my favorite things to do most weekdays on the way to work is put my life on the line by going to Wawa at 8 in the morning. Um, have you ever tried to drive in a Wawa parking lot at 8 in the morning? Oh, my goodness. I would rather sit on the Schuylkill. I feel safer. Uh so I have this experience regularly at Wawa where I'm walking to the front door and someone else is walking to the front door, maybe you've had this, and you both get, your, like you can see, you're, about, you're on a crash course, like you're going to get to the front door at the same time. And when you get to the front door at the same time, what happens? You stop and you have a conversation about who should go first and how... I've had a really long day, so I need to get in here first. And that person says, do you understand how oppressed I've been my whole life? I should go first. And, the other, and then you say, do you, you say, yeah, but I'm older. so I, No, you don't do that, right? One of you just says, right, go ahead. That's, that's it, right? It's really not that hard. <laughs> The same thing happens, actually, I live in Mayfair, and it's like stop signs every four feet, and inevitably you get to a stop sign, and, and you know, the rule is, first person to get there <coughs> gets to go first, right? But every now and then, two cars arrive at the same time, and inevitably, when the two cars arrive at the same time, you both get out, and you say, well, I have this much money in the bank, and the other person says, well, I'm this. No, you don't do that, right? Someone just says, go ahead, wait, right, you wave, right? You do that. It, listen, it doesn't mean 
that the person who went first is better than the other person. It doesn't mean that the first person that went first is more important or more powerful or more significant. It's just someone has to yield, right? If only we could be that polite in our marriages, right? When, when one person, when the husband wants one thing and the wife wants the other thing, if only someone would just say, go ahead, instead of, do you know how hard I work? Do you know what these kids are like? <laughs> and, and, and arguing. I mean, my goal at the end of the day is to get you to treat your spouse as well as you treat strangers at Wawa. <laughs> and I feel like I could close the sermon right now because you all know what I'm talking about. <laughs> right? I mean, if you, I mean <coughs> unless you're really a jerk at Wawa. But... I know if I'm in line and someone takes the last bacon sizzly, I don't yell at them for 45 minutes. I say, I say, I guess I'll take the sausage sizzly, you know, like, and that's it. End of conversation. I don't say, you know, 10 years ago when you took the last bacon sizzly, then this is hitting way too hard. And I, my, my wife is almost in tears. Okay. Um, like I said, and, and I mean this, it's, it's a joke, but I mean this also seriously. If by the end of the day I can get you to treat your spouse <coughs> as politely and to show them as much deference and honor as I can get you to show a fellow citizen at Wawa, this will be a win. Um, there is in the Bible... It's actually demonstrated perfectly in the Trinity. There's the idea that two people can be equal but still have a relationship where one yields to the other. And it's actually Jesus and the, fa- the, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit are equal. They are co-equal. They are all a person of the Trinitarian Godhead. Yet, Jesus yields his will to the Father, right? Does that mean that Jesus is less than the Father? It does not mean that. Does that mean that Jesus is less important? Does that mean that the Father has to be domineering? It doesn't mean that. It just means that you can be equal and still yield to one another. Does that make sense? Okay, it does make sense. All right, I didn't get any yeses there because I know you feel like if you agree with that, you're getting trapped, right? Okay, <laughs> like I, if I give in to this, you're going to make me do something. All right. So this morning, as we continue through Ephesians, we, we arrive at Ephesians 5, <coughs> a passage on marriage. Um, after this passage on marriage today, we're actually, actually going to get to a passage on parenting next week. Um, I'm going to read the passage, and I want to explain why these passages are important to all of us. Even if you are not married, this passage is meaningful. And next week, even if you don't have children, that passage will be meaningful. But first, let's look at the passage. This is Ephesians 5, starting in verse 21 through verse 33. And be subject to one another in the fear of Christ. Wives, be subject to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, as Christ also is the head of the church. He himself being the Savior of the body. 
But as the church is subject to Christ, so also the wives ought to be to their husbands in everything. Husbands, love your wives just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself up for her so that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word that he might present to himself the church in all her glory, having no spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that she would be holy and blameless. So husbands ought also to love their own wives as their own bodies. He who loves his own wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ also does the church, because we are members of his body. The reason that this next verse is in all caps is because it's a quote uh, from the Old Testament. For this reason a man shall leave his father and mother and shall be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. That's from Genesis. This mystery is great, but I am speaking with reference to Christ and the church. Nevertheless, each individual among you also is to love his own wife even as himself, and the wife must see to it that she respects her husband. All right, so you might read this passage or hear this passage, and uh, if you're not single, you might say, why does this matter to me? Why do I need to hear this? Well, a couple reasons. First, it is in the Bible. I mean, that should be enough, but if you need to be further convinced, <coughs> you know, it might be hard to believe, but I was single at one point, and then I got married, and it was helpful that I had a vaguely biblical worldview of marriage, and so some of you that are single may not be single forever. You may get married someday. It's helpful for you to know now what a Christian marriage looks like and what the Bible teaches about marriage. And even if you are single and remain single, you may disciple a married person someday. I mean, if you're actively engaged in fulfilling the Great Commission and obeying the commands of Jesus to make disciples of all nations, you may disciple a married person. Single guys, you might disciple a a married guy. Single women, you might disciple a married lady at some point. So you're going to want to be able to to take them through this. Another reason, if you're single, why you want to know this because this is helpful for evaluating church leaders. When a church puts people in leadership as elders or deacons or whatever other leadership roles that exist in various churches, this is one of the ways that you can evaluate the marriages of those that are in leadership. Are those marriages exemplary? And then, to me, this is the most important reason that everyone should understand this passage regardless of your marital status. It's talking about Jesus in the church. This passage is ultimately not about marriage. It's about Jesus in the church. Marriage is an illustration of Jesus' relationship to the church, and it's in that order. Jesus and the church do not illustrate marriage. Marriage illustrates Jesus in the church. The ultimate reality is Jesus' relationship to the church. The illustration of that reality is is a biblical, godly marriage. So regardless of your marital status, there is something for you in this passage. Is that, you following me so far? Now, so that's why this is relevant to everybody. (coughs) Now, I also want to point out this passage that I've read is presenting what I would call the ideal, okay? The ideal being that there's a husband and a wife and that both are believers who are following Jesus and that the wife is 
in obedience to Jesus being subject to the husband and that the husband in obedience to Jesus is loving the wife and sanctifying her and developing her in her discipleship. That is the ideal. I understand that there's a lot of non-ideal circumstances. And 1 Corinthians 7 actually deals with many of those non-ideal circumstances, like what happens if a spouse leaves? What happens if one spouse is not a believer? What happens if there's infidelity? The Bible does address those issues, but they're not in this passage, but they are in 1 Corinthians 7. So just to be clear, what we're going to look at today is the ideal. That, you know, like If everything went perfect, this is the way it would go, but rarely do things ever go perfectly right? Well, the New Testament has plenty to say about that. 1 Corinthians 7 is where you would go to start dealing with exceptional cases. I'm going to call those exceptional cases where it's like, well, what we have in my house doesn't exactly look like this. So where do I go to find the biblical instruction? 1 Corinthians 7. But we're not in 1 Corinthians 7 today. We've preached through that in the past. We've presented that. I'd be more than happy to talk to any of you about that. But we're in Ephesians 5 today. (coughs) It's important for us to at least present the ideal so that it exists in our minds. This passage is written in a specific context as well. You know, this was not written last week. It was not written in America. Uh, So what is the context it was written in? (coughs) First century Rome, uh, actually Ephesus, but it was under Roman influence. This is what marriage was like at the time. So in a, I'm just reading from the, uh, uh, a study Bible cre- uh, produced by Ray Backey, who's like the sharpest mind on urban ministry that I've ever read. This is how Ray Backey describes first century non-Christian marriages. In a great many marriages of the first century, the husband was much older than his wife. He frequented other partners for sex, taking on a wife only to father legitimate children. So the purpose of an older man finding a wife was not for a lifelong commitment of love and monogamy and exclusive sexual intercourse. It was so he could fool around with other people but at least have some kids with this woman. Uh, Often girls of 13 or 14 years old entered into an arranged marriage, frequently against their will, and often with a man that they had never previously met. There was little communication, cooperation, or affection, or there was no expectation of those. Can you imagine going into a marriage and you don't even expect cooperation or communication? New life in Jesus calls for new patterns in marriage. Paul instructed the husband to love his wife and seek her personal development, which was a radically new idea in that culture. The wife was to respond with commitment and loyalty. Her submission was not subordination, but a wholehearted response to her husband's love. So I want you to understand that the the people who are receiving this letter from Paul, they open up this letter and they read it publicly in their church. This is a brand new idea. Because to them, marriage was a 30-year-old man and an arranged marriage with a 13- or 14-year-old girl He was still going to sleep with other people on the side, but he needed someone to give him kids, so that's why he got married. 
There was no communication. There was no affection. There was no commitment. There was no loyalty. It was, I need someone to bear me some kids. So that was their idea of marriage. Paul writes this, and Paul, as he writes this in 1 Corinthians and Galatians, and as Paul develops the idea of what a Christian marriage would look like, it is for the purpose of affection. It is in the context of loyalty and commitment and monogamy. I mean, that's monogamy meaning one sexual partner for life. I mean, that's the way Paul presents marriage. So it would have been completely foreign to them when he wrote this, and it's beginning to be a completely foreign idea now. Where I, I really don't think we're but a generation away from where <coughs> the way Christians treat marriage, if they treat it this way, will be a totally foreign concept to most of the world, or to most of America at least. And Christians will actually stand out for the way that they treat marriage. So uh, the context that this is written in, this would have been a radical <coughs> new idea. Uh, now, it's interesting to point out, before we, we're going to jump into picking apart the passage in a moment, but I want to point out, you know, the guy that wrote this passage was single. He was not married. Thank you. He was not married. He was single. Uh, you know, everything Jesus taught on marriage was not from his marriage experience because he was also single. So why does that matter? You might, you might sit back like, why am I going to take marriage advice from a single person? Well, because Paul is not telling us his experience. He's actually modeling marriage after the gospel. So it really doesn't matter if he's single, married, married multiple times, 10 kids, no kids. Like none of, If you can only take advice from someone who has gone through what you've gone through, you're really shutting off most of the world. Paul's teaching on marriage is not, here's what I've found in my experience. Paul's teaching on marriage is, here's the way the gospel works, and this is how it would apply in a marriage. And he doesn't need to be married to teach us that. Does that make sense? Um, so principles that are true can be shared and exchanged by anyone who understands the principle, not just by first people that have had firsthand experience, okay? Uh, now, I want to get into this passage and start to kind of piece uh, this together. So this is going to be really fun, okay? C can you give me two minutes to just be a little bit of a geek? Okay. <coughs> just two minutes. All right. In your Bibles, if you have a paper Bible or a Bible on your phone, you may notice that verse 21 says, be subject to one another in the fear of Christ, and then there might be a marriage heading, uh, sorry, a, chap a, a topic heading about marriage, and then it starts with verse 22. Now, I think you know this already, but those chapter headings were not in the Bible originally. It's something we place in there just to help people find passages, just like the chapter numbers and the verse numbers are not originally in the Bible. We just give every verse an address so that we can find it really quick. Oh, no, it disappeared. It's coming back. So verse 21... Yeah, okay. Well, I can do this anyway. I have a Bible in front of me. Okay. Verse 21 <coughs> says, Be subject to one another in the fear of Christ. 
In Greek, there is no chapter uh, subject heading, and it says, wives to your own husbands as to the Lord. So right here, this, wives, be subject to your own husbands. If you see, be subject is in italics, because in Greek, that verb, be subject, is not there. It's implied. So when a, when a verb, you know a verb, I'll go back to third grade, a verb is an action word, okay? So be subject <coughs> is not in the Greek, so you have to find the verb from the context. So when it says, be subject to one another, wives, to your own husbands, is what it says. Be subject to one another, wives, to your own husbands. So we're getting our verb from verses 21 and 24, as the church is subject to Christ. So subject is in the Greek here, it is in the Greek here, it's implied here. So if your Bible might put that in italics or brackets, I mean, maybe your Bible does nothing with it, but in mine, it's in italics to tell me, okay, that's, a, that's something they had to f- put in to fill a gap. But nonetheless, the meaning is there. But why am I showing you this? Because I want you to understand that verse 20, verses 21 and 22 go together. Verse 21 is not the end of a thought, and then we start a fresh thought in verse 22. Verses 21 and 22 go together. So, <coughs> why does that matter? Because verse 21 is teaching mutual yielding. Be subject to one another in the fear of Christ. It is teaching mutual yielding yielding. Verse 22 shows us how a wife yields to her husband, and then somewhere around verse 25, it shows us how a husband yields to his wife. So this passage is is telling us, husbands and wives, you're going to yield to one another, but you're going to do it differently. Wives, to you, yielding looks this way. Husbands, to you, yielding looks that way. Okay, so I want to be clear in case there's any questions. What you're going to get taught this morning is that husbands bear the primary responsibility for leading and uh, covering in a marriage. That the buck stops there, to say it in a Western Pennsylvania way. Um, that husbands, I mean, it's right there on the screen behind me. Husbands are the head who lead the family. Okay, that's what's going to be taught this morning, but. It's going to be taught in a way that calls husbands to not domineer and dominate, but to serve in love and to create an atmosphere where it's really easy for the wife to support, okay? So I I want to be clear about that. I believe that the Bible teaches that men should lead in their households and that wives support them in that leading, Uh, but I, I also don't think it teaches that men have a blank slate and or, or a blank check to do whatever they want. So how does a wife yield to her husband or how does a wife treat her husband at least as, as nice as she would a stranger at Wawa? Says, wives, be subject to your own husbands as to the Lord, <coughs> for the husband is the head of the wife as Christ also is the head of the church he himself being the savior of the body. But as the church is subject to Christ, so also the wives ought to be to their husbands and everything. If I could just put it simply, 
because Paul uses the head and body metaphor here. How can a wife yield to her husband? By supporting him. I mean, that's the simplest way that I can say it this morning. A wife can yield to her husband by supporting him. That when the husband needs support, the wife provides it. Obviously, there are some qualifications that come with that. If your husband wants to rob a bank, you should not support him in doing that. You know, but as long as he's not violating scripture uh, <coughs> and doing something ridiculous, uh, you should support. Uh, when, you, when a wife yields in support to her husband, she is actually doing so as a form of uh, obedience to the Lord. It says, wives, be subject to your own husbands as to the Lord. When a wife supports her husband, she is doing that as to Jesus himself. It's like supporting Jesus. In verse 23, a wife is told, or the wife is told, that you would support your husband as if a body supports its head, right? If you've ever seen a little newborn baby, like they, their necks can't even support their heads, right? I, I was always afraid with all of my kids that I was just going to find a head rolling across the, the floor like their head just snapped off their neck and kept rolling because, man, the, the neck, those baby necks are so weak, right? And when, when you do not have a strong marriage, it feels like that. You know, like the head and the body are going in different directions, and it hurts when that happens, and it's difficult, and there's confusion. The body should be supporting the head, and the head should be guiding and leading the body. <clears throat> In verse 24, it says that uh, wives ought to be supportive or yield in support to their husbands in everything. In everything should be understood as in everything within the confines of Scripture. Okay? So again, if, if a husband is trying to lead his wife into sin, the wives then have to prioritize, <coughs> prioritize their commitment to Jesus and not follow. How do we come to this conclusion that yield is the way that we understand uh, what it means to be subject? <coughs> the word, the, the, the phrase for be subject means to yield one's own rights. So we're not saying that a, a husband loses his rights or that a wife loses her rights, we're actually saying that you're voluntarily, voluntarily surrendering your rights. It, I mean, marriage, if anything, it's, a, it's an experiment in giving up rights, you know? And you surrender those. And so it's a voluntary attitude of cooperating or assuming responsibility. Submission or being subject does not imply inferiority, but a difference in role since Christ functionally submits to the Father. So that's how we end up with yielding. And a wife yields to her husband by <coughs> offering support. How does a husband yield to his wife? Well, just so you know, Paul says twice as much to the husbands as he does to the wives. You know, if I could summarize what Paul says to the wives, it's be supportive. The way that a wife would show that she is yielding to her husband is by being supportive. The way a husband yields to his wife is way more complicated. So husbands, buckle up, okay? In fact, you're going to get yelled at a little bit later. Husbands, <coughs> love your wives just as Christ also loved the church. So that's the first thing. Husbands have to love their wives. You are not uh, signing up for a business partner when you get married. You are not doing one of these first century marriages that I told you about earlier. You're signing up to love. 
And, lo- you know, love is not a feeling. Well, but it is. Love is not a feeling, it's a commitment. And it's a commitment. It's, love is a feeling that leads to a commitment. And when the feeling disappears for a little while, the commitment sustains you. But if the feeling never returns, that commitment's going to be very dry. It's more like a contract. It's a feeling and it's a commitment, right? And so when the, when the feeling's not there, the commitment is what keeps you together. Uh, and when the commitment feels low, the, 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 the warmth of your affection for one another can keep you going. They really both need to exist. I don't think commitment without affection makes for a godly marriage. And I'm very much in favor of commitment, but there has to be affection. So husbands, the way that you have to yield to your wife is by showing her love. I don't recall that there is a command for the wife to love the husband. It's preferred, but not required. No, I think it probably is also required, but uh, Paul didn't feel that he needed to write that. (coughs) Uh, A husband also yields... Uh, by sanctifying his wife. I love this part because it means, husbands, you have to step up your game when it comes to discipleship and being the pastor of your house. You have a congregation, your your wife and your kids, so that he might sanctify his wife, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, that he might present to himself the church in all her glory, having no spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that she would be holy and blameless. So husbands, you have a responsibility to contribute to the sanctification of your wife. That your wife growing in Christ-likeness is somewhat your responsibility. Now, for every individual, it's primarily their own. So women, you cannot just give up your discipleship and say, that's my husband's responsibility. No, as a follower of Jesus, you take primary responsibility. Your husband comes along and supports and supplements that. Men, you have your primary responsibility for your own spiritual growth, but you also have a responsibility for your wife and for your kids and to pastor your own household. I would, I would love it if every man here became the pastor of their own household. Or that actually, you already are, so started living up to being the pastor of your own household. Uh, that alone would transform an entire church and community <coughs> and neighborhood. So, uh, husbands have a responsibility for their wives' spiritual growth. Verse 29 says that husbands should nurture and cherish their body or their, their bride. Uh, the illustration that Paul continues when he says that the, the husband is the head, he then says, and the wife is like the body. So they do work together. A head without a body or a body without a head are useless, right? So, Husbands, how are you to treat your wife who is, serves as if you're, she's your body and you're her head? By nourishing and cherishing. That just goes to show me that Paul understood that men can have the ability to nurture. That men do not have to be, you know, grumpy lumberjacks, even though that's my preferred type of men. <laughs> but that, you know, men can nourish Men can cherish. Men can be nurturing as well, and they display that in their homes. And in this case, they nurture and cherish their own wife the way that Jesus does the church. Husbands, if you're trying to figure out 
uh, how should I love my wife? How does Jesus love the church? What did he do for the church? Did he sacrifice? Yeah, he died ultimately. He made sacrifices. He humbled himself in order to die. I mean, he humbled himself. He lived obediently for all those years. Then he died. Yeah, the husbands are biting off a lot more than they probably realize when they get married. (coughs) Uh, So, really quickly, there is zero tolerance in the New Testament and zero tolerance in our church for husbands to use this passage to domineer and dominate their wives. And I'll just say it bluntly. Husbands, if you have to force your wife to look at this passage, you're already losing. Um, I'm not saying that you should never engage the passage, but uh, you should read the passage and you should look at the passage and you should study the passage, but if you have to yell it at her or force it down her throat, you're already doing something wrong. You're all, you should be ashamed at your lack of leadership if you have to dominate someone with Scripture and use Scripture as a tool to, to beat them with or to force compliance with. Uh, you're already not leading well if you've gotten to that point, okay? You should be, as, as we read earlier, creating such an environment of love that your wife willfully and voluntarily responds to your leadership by yielding with support to you does that make sense so i'll just put it out there wives if your husband uses this passage as a like a weapon against you you can come let one of our elders know and tell on him because that is not spiritual leadership that is manipulation it's pharisaical and it it actually hurts marriages uh so you can tell pastor john eric about that He likes getting into those fracases. Okay, and and that actually (coughs) leads me to this question that I think think many women have. If I as a wife yield to my husband, what's to keep him from taking advantage of that? Exactly, his love is what keeps him from taking advantage of that. Which means, husbands, you have to create an environment in your home where it's easy for your wife to follow your leadership. And uh, if she's having a hard time following your leadership, the first place you should look is yourself. I'm not saying that would be the only place, but I'm saying you should start there and begin to investigate that. Uh, The thing that, if you just simply say to a woman, you must submit yourself to her husband, and that's the end of the conversation, you are asking her to take an incredible risk right? But if you then turn and say to the husband, you have to sacrifice your life for her, that creates an like equal risk. In fact, I would say it even maybe puts more risk on the husband. Where if he's willing to die for her, she'll be willing to let him pick where they have dinner. I would think. You hearing that, dear? (laughs) All right. I want to eat at Wawa. All right. Now, Paul does summarize his teaching on marriage in verses 31 
through 33. This is directed to both parties. He just goes back to Genesis. This is not a new idea. He's actually just expounding on what Genesis says. And uh, he's speaking with reference to Christ in the church. In verse 33, I just, if this is the summary. I love this. Nevertheless, each individual among you also is to love his own wife, even as he loves himself. So just to, this is a summary. Husbands, you have to love your wives. And the wife must see to it that she respects her husband. So how does a wife yield to her husband? Su- uh, support and respect. How does a husband yield to his wife? with love in discipling her uh, and creating an environment of, of love and support. Um, I have been married for 15 years. I have performed approximately 30 weddings. I've sat in, I've performed about <coughs> 200 premarital counseling meetings over those years. This is the, a common theme that I hear. The main thing that the wife wants to know is that she is safe and loved. And the main thing that husbands want to know is that they're being respected. Very rarely have I heard a husband say, I want to feel safe and loved. He just wants to know that she respects him. And the main thing the wives want to know is that they're safe and that they're going to be loved and cared for. And I think that's what Paul's kind of saying that. Husbands, love your wives. Wives, respect your husbands. One of the worst things that a husband can do is make his wife feel unloved or unsafe, whether that's physically, verbally, sexually, whatever. Financially, when a husband causes his wife to feel unsafe, it's, it rocks the foundation of the marriage. And when a wife disrespects her husband, I, you know, women, I don't know if you realize this, but speaking as a man... When a wife disrespects her husband, it goes deep. And it can really begin to create cracks in the foundation of his confidence and his ability to lead. So women, you know, careful with your words when you're speaking to your husband because words of disrespect really have a, a huge impact on him. So uh, I want to I wrap up by pivoting a little bit. <laughs> because this morning we've been talking about marriage, but next week we're going to get into parenting. Children, obey your parents and the Lord, uh, for this is right. Honor your father and mother. Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger. I mean, we're going to get into that next week, which means that we're spending two weeks in a row on family. And uh, I want to just close by praying for households and praying for families. Today it was marriage. Next week it's raising your kids and children, and man, you know, and life's, I joke about this all the time. Unless you were hatched from an egg, you're part of a family, right? I mean, you were born, you, your parents may not be living, but you had parents. Um, you, you have grandparents and potentially siblings and cousins and aunts and uncles and nieces and nephews and maybe kids of your own and maybe a spouse. And, I mean, Unless someone discovered you under a rock and grew you in a petri dish, you have some earthly relationships. And so the Bible has much to say about that. And I know everyone's in a different situation, but I want us to pray for families uh, this morning. So I'm going to ask if you wouldn't mind, we're just going to get into three groups, okay? If this is the smallest group, if you guys could gather and just pray for families, if this section could all the way back to the back row, 
could gather and pray for families and if this section could gather and pray for families uh, because every time we at, uh, approach this subject, inevitably there's spiritual warfare. You know, everyone picks this is the week to have a fight. And somehow they're always like, you didn't even listen to the sermon. Like, it's my fault. <laughs> I'm just teaching the Bible. So let's get in, you know, medium-sized groups. Let's pray for the families uh, that are represented here, and then we'll close from there. Thank you for listening to True Vine's Sermon of the Week. This podcast and an archive of previous episodes can be found at blessphiladelphia.com.